Welcome to the Follow Your Flow podcast. This is episode number seven. Okay, I am very excited to release this episode with the author of the book, In the Name of the Pill, Mike Gaskins. I'm not going to give too much away here. I want you to have a listen. I just do want to say it is very well worth listening all the way to the end of this episode because there's so much gold in here. There's so much important information that is discussed by myself and Mike, and it is information that we really all should know as women and also ask ourselves, why don't we know this already? As I always say, being fully informed is such an important step in our health and well-being, in our healthcare plan. We need to know exactly what we're consuming, just like anything that we would put in our body, how it works and the impacts that it's going to have on our body and our well-being. Because we're often really very, very quick to take these hormonal birth control drugs that have become very, very normalized in our society today without really doing the research and without really fully understanding it first. I am a huge advocate for this, being fully informed to make clear decisions and empowered choices. So this is part of the discussion that I have with Mike, and we go further into looking at the history of the pill, the history of hormonal birth control, how it actually started, how it got passed and approved by the FDA, We go into all sorts of things and it's an interesting history, very interesting history indeed. As always, please remember that the content in these episodes is for informational purposes only. Make sure that you see your healthcare professional for any changes that you wish to make to your own personal healthcare plan. All right, now let's head over to the episode to hear more from Mike Gaskins. You're listening to Follow Your Flow, your podcast on all things women's health, menstruation, and fertility. Your host, fertility awareness educator, women's health practitioner, and lover of all things health and healing, brings her wealth of experience along with the real experiences of women and the expertise of health professionals. If you're looking for real and insightful conversations, with real women, along with inspiring and lasting ways to improve your health, then you've come to the right place. Here's your host on Follow Your Flow, Sarah Harris. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Flow podcast. I have a very special guest with me on today's show, where we're going to go down the hormonal birth control rabbit hole. Well, specifically, we're going to be talking about the pill. Um, which millions of women have been taking over the past 60 years. And it's an interesting phenomenon um, because it is a medication, it's a drug, and perhaps the only medication that was initially intended to be prescribed for a person who is actually well, so someone who's not sick, and its use was to or is to completely turn off an entire body system. Now, of course, the pill is prescribed for many different reasons, many different conditions, and it's got a very wide and varied use today. And its use seems to be continually growing exponentially year upon year, despite very real and very concerning experiences that some women, um, I would say many women, experience. 
And who better to explore what he says is a dubious history and science behind the hormonal birth control pill and its counterparts other than Mike Gaskins, who is the author of the book that I have recently read, um, not quite finished, but almost there, called In the Name of the Pill. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you began your journey as a women's health advocate after a world-renowned physician lied to you about birth control side effects. And you say this was a chance encounter that triggered a passion for research that led you to discover many shocking levels of deceit and misinformation surrounding these potent drugs. And you also recently collaborated with a group of leading physicians and women's health advocates on a citizen's petition to the FDA asking for new and stronger black box warnings on all hormonal contraceptives. Now, I want to get into asking you about all of this, but firstly, just wanted to get you to share with the listeners, just to tell us how you came to be so passionate about hormonal birth control. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I do, uh, my work is as a video producer, media producer, um, and I've been doing a lot of live events over the past decade or so. Um, And several years ago, I guess it's five or six years now, I was doing a um, uh, a show in Las Vegas for doctors. It was continuing education uh, for their CME credits. And the whole show was on autoimmune disease. Uh, and they had doctors from all different specialties there. And uh, the keynote speaker on the first night was Dr. Noel Rose from Johns Hopkins University. And he's called the father of autoimmune disease. Uh, he had first discovered, uh, well, he was studying Hashimoto's thyroiditis in rabbits in the late 50s, I believe it was. And and he's the first one to come up with this concept of the body's immune system attacking itself. Uh, and so he came up with the theory and gave it the name autoimmune disease. And of course, you know, today it's a household word. You know, almost everybody knows what autoimmune disease is. Um, so he was speaking that first night and he was just kind of doing broad brush uh, overview for doctors explaining a little about autoimmunity. Um, and as he started talking, I, I was convinced he had to be talking about hormonal birth control because he was he was talking about how we we have these chemicals that get in our body and they mimic natural estrogen um, and we have these fighter cells in our immune systems that are t cells uh, and they're basically the soldiers of the immune system and so what those soldiers do is they wait for our natural estrogen to attach to them or or other hormones and that kind of gives them their marching orders so they know what to attack if if we have a, you know, a bacteria or a virus or something in our body. Um, but what happens when these other chemicals get in our body that mimic our natural estrogen, they attach to those receptor cells on, on the T cells. And so now the soldier is armed, but because it wasn't our natural estrogen, it's not sure what to attack. It's confused, but it's ready to attack. So it ends up attacking our, our natural tissues. And and like I said, as, as he was talking, I was trying to think, what, what's he talking about chemicals that mimic natural estrogen? I, I didn't know anything about endocrine disruptors or, or anything at that time, but I thought he, he has to be talking about birth control. So as he was talking, I Googled rise of autoimmune disease, and I saw that all of these autoimmune diseases had started to skyrocket since like the early 70s. And I was, I was baffled. I was like, wow, why, do, why don't we hear more about this? If it's so well known, you know, why aren't we hearing that 
that these things are contributing. And um, by, by the end of his speech, I was convinced that that was what he was talking about. And uh, I told my audio guy, I said, I, you know, I, I want to take the mic off of him. I'm really fascinated by this. And so when the show was over, I, I went up and, and grabbed the mic and started talking to him. And, and I said, so exactly what role does, does birth control play in all of this? And he said, oh, none at all. And I, I was taken aback. I, I said, well, that, that seems counterintuitive based on everything you just said. And he said, no. He said, there's been no evidence linking uh, birth control to, to any of these diseases. It kind of doubled down. And I believed him because he's the father of autoimmune disease. You know, he's the world-renowned authority. And, and just kind of left it at that. Even, you know, the conversation continued for a little while just because I was still kind of baffled, but I really wasn't questioning him. Uh, but that night when I got back to my hotel room, I was still thinking about it and how bizarre it was. And just on a lark, I, I Googled um, oral contraceptives plus lupus. I just picked lupus out of the air. Uh, and I found the, uh, an article on this new study that had come out that said women who uh, who have lupus are 50% more, or women who take birth control are 50% more likely to develop lupus. Uh, and as I'm reading it, I thought, wow, this is fascinating. Maybe Dr. Rose hasn't heard about this. Uh, I'll look for him tomorrow at the conference and, and see if, he, if he's heard of it. And I get about halfway down the article and there's a quote from him in the article saying, this study doesn't mean women should stop taking the pill for some small increased risk of developing lupus. Um, and another term I didn't know at the time was gaslighting, but I felt like I had been gaslighted. I, I couldn't understand why this, this sweet old man would have lied to me. What, what would his, you know, what does he have to gain from telling me, you know, something that he clearly knew was true. I convinced myself maybe he just thought I was a simpleton and it was easier to say there was no connection, but I couldn't get around the fact that he had clearly told me there was no evidence. And so I, I was angry, honestly. I, I was just, I was angry that he would have completely lied to me, steered me in the wrong direction. And I started Googling other, you know, diseases and I started finding all of these links that have been studied. Uh, for, you know, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And, and just the more I read, the angrier I got. And um, it, I kind of sat on it for a while. And, be, and because video is my background, I, I thought I would love to do a, a documentary on it and started collecting information uh, and still wasn't really sure what I would do with it. And um, at the same time, I was always wrestling with the, uh, okay, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a woman. So what, you know, what right do I have to even be talking about this or, you know, being concerned with it? Um, and after a little bit of that, I, I, I started talking with a, a lady who, uh, Carrie Gretchen Love, who was writing for Hormones Matter about, we had a kind of, a, a, I guess, a shared interest in the Nelson Pill hearings. And she asked me if I'd be interested in starting to write for Hormones Matter, which is a really great website that Chandler Mars runs and uh, put me in touch with Chandler and I started writing articles and um, Chandler was really supportive and it, and it kind of uh, gave me that first platform to start writing and, and the response let me know that women were really grateful to be hearing this because a lot of times their doctors were treating them like they were crazy for thinking they had these side effects or this might've caused that. And uh, so it, it was really, it was really encouraging to say, okay, I, I do have a right to have a voice in this. And, and to this day, I've never had a woman uh, yell at me or tell me I'm an idiot for trying to get involved with it. 
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I finally started speaking out and sharing what I was learning. Uh, and then it, it ultimately led to the book, of course. Yeah, it's it's amazing that you have followed that path and, you know, sort of, you know, you say it was a chance encounter, but I think I'm, I'm not so sure about that. You know, there's something definitely very purposeful about, you know, what you've been exposing and it feels, you know, really important information that we, we all need to have. And the fact that it's coming from a man, you know, and you actually had a bit more of a backstory too with your experience with your wife taking the pill. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, it's, it's funny, kind of the backstory, you, you don't really, as you step into it, or as I stepped into it and started researching and writing, you know, it's all of these kind of aha moments from my past started coming together. And the first one being, you know, when, when my wife and I early in our relationship, we, she, she had gone to the doctor for something else and, and the doctor ended up putting her on birth control. And um, for us, it was, it seemed like a great option. This was before we were Catholic. So we were, we were using condoms and, and we weren't really happy with them. And it seemed like, an, you know, it was an awesome opportunity to try something else. And it had been on the market for decades at that point. And so she didn't think about questioning the safety as I'm sure most women don't. And of course, the doctor didn't offer up any reason for concern. And um, I remember it just, it, I, I hadn't made the connection, but it did change her immediately. And we both see that now in retrospect. Um, but it was a really rocky time in our relationship, probably the rockiest we've ever had. And we, we didn't make any of that connection. But, but a few months in, uh, I do remember she was opening the package and I happened to be there and the, the information pamphlet fell out on the floor and I started unfolding it and unfolding it and um, started reading through it. And just with her family history and some of the things I was, I was seeing listed, I, I was really concerned. And uh, I asked her if the doctor had mentioned any of these side effects or discussed it with her. And, and she, she was kind of like, what side effects? She, she had no idea. And so we, it led to a really long and thoughtful conversation between us. And um, it ended with, I still remember clearly saying, hey, look, it, I can't tell you what to do, but at the end of our lives, if this costs us one less day together, it's not worth it to me. And I could just see the relief kind of fall over her. She was, she was so relieved and she said she was so glad to hear me say that because um, that she she felt like they were making her crazy. She felt like she was a different person. Like she had no control over her moods and and all this. So it, it was a tremendous relief to her that that it wasn't important to me that she stay on them. Um, so it you know it's clearly her decision, but obviously how I felt about it meant a lot to her as well. So I think that's why it's it's really important to not just look at this as a woman's issue, especially when it's husband and wife, and and you know you've you've gone into this commitment to each other. Um, it's very important to be open, to have these conversations and for, for men to, to express to, to women, Hey, this is how I feel. I, I love you. And I don't want you to put yourself at danger, you know? And, and I, I think women need to hear that. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a few things there in what you just said. And as well, like we, when you said you opened the, the packet and the, pamphlet that you were unfolding you know <laughs> then they are they're, they're just pamphlets that just have a lot of information on them but 
how many how many women actually read them and yeah yes how many doctors also actually share the information so there's there's kind of i see kind of two two folds um, there's this supply and demand thing as well like i i see you know everything that you've exposed in terms of you know and i want to talk to you about all of that in terms of the the nelson pill hearings and how it all got passed through the fda and how it's all like i i think you actually said in your book that it's never been proven safe which right. yeah which i was just like wow that's an incredible statement to make you know and we're not hearing about the side effects but neither are women i mean women are definitely waking up to it and we've got men like you waking up to it as well and but i i also speak to a lot of women that say that they never asked you know they never you know there's there's kind of this supply and demand so obviously on some level women have been asking we're asking for this you know that's the demand um and it's just being supplied so it's kind of like we need to, as women, shift our idea of, you know, our, our healthcare and our reproductive health into a into a different gear where we're demanding something, you know, that that is more reflective of that is empowering us. You know, we're demanding healthcare that's empowering, that's educating, you know, rather than it's something that we can sort of just sort of set and forget, you know, with with the pill. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, absolutely, I, I think that's a very key word. I, I, one of the uh, one of the letters I got from a young woman or emails um, that really brought me to tears. That's the point where she she said she felt after reading the book for the first time she felt empowered to make the right decision for herself, and not only that, she felt empowered to inform her friends to make sure they knew, you know, the, the risk of these pills and. For me, that, that was huge because I think one of the things I really kicked myself about the most once I started researching and writing was, you know, it's really convenient as a man to buy into this, this idea of, oh, it's, it's a woman's issue, which is kind of the same as saying, well, it's a woman's problem. I don't have to deal with it. You know, it's really easy to, to walk away from it or use that as a shield where you don't have to have the inconvenience of thinking about all the negatives of something. And I really kick myself for when I go back and I look at that conversation between my wife and I, why didn't I think a little deeper? Why didn't I think about my sisters or my nieces or other women that I love in my life? Why didn't I think about having that conversation of saying, hey, did your doctor tell you about these things? Because Liz's didn't tell her. And and I don't know why we, you know, I'm assuming I'm, you know, I'm not just an evil person. I'm assuming that's kind of the the natural thing we've bought into this idea uh, as a culture of it's 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 not a man's place so unless it's my wife then i've got absolutely no business discussing it with another woman um and i think that's totally wrong you know and again it's not about telling a woman what to do but we should care about making sure our sisters and nieces and aunts or whoever have been given proper information and, and they know, especially if we have a history of breast cancer in the family or autoimmune diseases or, or any of these things that have clearly been linked, we need to be having those conversations with the, with the women in our families. Especially when, um, yes, for that reason too, but especially when contraception is, is not just a woman's issue, you know, and, and I think that right. that's the way that the medication has been formed and created as if it's a woman's issue. You know, and, and the woman needs to sort of bear the brunt of that, and it's not it's not a um, combined 
responsibility. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, the way it's all set up? It is. And then it makes us think that it is all about the woman and that, like you say, you, you know, even hesitated that you had any right to, to say anything about how that was going to be affecting your wife, you know. So, mm. yeah, it's so important and very interesting. Yeah. This is kind of on a, a little bit of a tangent, but I, again, those, those conversations throughout my life just kind of came to me as I started writing. Uh, and there's one I mentioned in the book about a, a friend of mine whose, whose wife was kind of sensitive about other women getting pregnant because they, had, you know, they were having trouble conceiving and, and were trying to find out if they might be infertile. But we had this conversation about uh, the years on birth control and kind of wondering you know, I wonder, you know, because birth control does kind of mess with your reproductive stuff going on there. And I wonder if the pill could have anything to do with people not being able to conceive. It was just, you know, it was two guys talking and, and it was like, it's, it's really strange that, you know, if that is the case, we've never heard about it, but then we just kind of shrugged it off and went on and never dug any deeper. And I think that's what a lot of people do, you know, when it comes to, there are just, there are just so many things that, kind of make your scratch your head about birth control and, and you may get a sense of it and you may question it, but we, we tend to just shrug it off, you know, and, and walk away and not dig deeper and not think about it. Yeah. It's, it's become such a normal sort of assimilated into society as just such a normal part to even the point where I have, you know, been seeing women in the clinic for, for many, many years and often, very often women will not even put under the medication know that they're taking the pill because they don't see it as a medication you know it's even gotten to the point where it's actually not even it's so normal that it's not even considered a drug yeah it's not considered a drug it's yeah that's another kind of evolution I, I used to say you know that doctors treat it like it should come in a Pez dispenser you know like just like it's candy um, but it's uh, I think it's worse than that I think doctors treat it like it's a vitamin you know, so at least candy, you have some sense of it's not good for you. But I think a lot of doctors are actually giving women the sense of, of this being a good thing, you know, because you're, it's a hormone, just like your body makes is what they say. So they're, they're giving this, the sense of it's almost like a supplemental kind of thing, which is totally wrong. Yeah, it's true. Cause it, it is very much prescribed uh, for, as a way to regulate your period. And, mm -hmm. and it, doesn't actually do that and this is something that I speak to women about all the time is that it's it's not regulating anything it's actually switching off the entire system and so there is no regulation happening it's just literally switching it off you're not ovulating you're not making any of your hormones and the the hormones in the pill are synthetic hormones and they're not the estrogen and progesterone that you produce and they don't do the same things in fact when you really look at it, they actually do very much the opposite of what our natural hormones do for us, you know, in terms of like increasing mood and then, or, and then destabilizing mood or, you know, just the, the opposite of what our hormones naturally do. So it's, um, it, it is something that we're sort of trained to, um, or we've been educated. I guess we've, we have been educated, but the way we've been educated is to uh, not, is, is to see it for something that it's not. Right. 
miseducated, I guess. <laughs> miseducated, yes, exactly. <laughs> now, you spoke about the Nelson Peel hearings. You mentioned that before. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Because it's a bit of a landmark um, event in the history of the Peel. Um, can you give the listeners a bit of understanding what, what that is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this was another thing where it kind of broadened my horizons because I've, I've never been into history. I've, I've never enjoyed history at all. Um, but I, I became fascinated by the Nelson Pill hearings, um, which in 1970, Senator Gaylord Nelson uh, was the U.S. Senator. Um, and in January of that year, he decided he, he was in the midst of these, these hearings already called competitive problems in the uh, drug industry. And Barbara Seaman, who had written a book called Doctor's Case Against the Pill, uh, had sent a copy to him and asked if he would consider in including that conversation in his hearings. So they had, over the course of about three months in 1970, they looked at the pill, trying to determine if it had ever been proclaimed safe um, or had been proven safe. And um, so Senator Nelson, um, that same year founded Earth Day in, in April of 1970. So he was, he was really busy that year. So the father of Earth Day was also looking at, at birth control. And there's kind of this neat underlying, you know, mesh between those two things anyway, because part of what he discovered and, and grew uncomfortable with throughout the hearings was this idea of uh, a, a couple of the uh, testimonies came right out and said, this is, basically we shift the benefit to risk paradigm. This is the first time in history that we've looked at the benefit to society versus the risk to the individual patient. You know, clearly the benefit to risk paradigm is supposed to be the benefit versus the risk to the patient. But in this case, they twisted it because fears of overpopulation were so strong that they determined uh, they needed to do something to, to reduce population growth. So they were willing to essentially, you know, sacrifice women or women's health in the name of reducing population growth. So that's what they did. They, they looked at the benefit to society versus the risk to woman. And, and I think in many ways, that's still kind of the way they look at it. That's, that's why so often when you see articles about studies linking it to breast cancer or atherosclerosis or any of these autoimmune diseases, there's always an industry expert or a doctor who's willing to say the benefits still outweigh the risks. Women shouldn't stop taking it. The benefits still outweigh the risks. Every time you see that, you need to question what benefit, what risk, whose benefit, whose risk, uh, because that's, that's what the whole thing is based on, the benefit to society versus the risk to the woman. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? Basically, what we're saying there is that the... It is huge. Yeah, that, that we're, you know, supplying a medication to women that doesn't matter if there's a, an effect. I mean, the thing is, there is... I, we say side effects, but they're effects, you know, let's call it for what it is. It's that it is affecting, it is a drug, it's affecting the body. And yes, there will be women who experience bigger side effects and some less, but it is, it is effective. It, it does what it says it's going to do and then it does more. Um, right. But so there are effects, you know, but 
what we're saying is that the risk to the woman is not as important as the risk to the population. Is that what, is that essentially what you're saying? Right. Essentially. Yes. Um, and, and I mean, there, obviously there was a lot that came out over the three months uh, and the, the drug, drug industry kind of reacted uh, <laughs> uh, vociferously uh, against the hearings, saying that they were, you know, they were biased and they were trying to make them look bad. But again, you had you had a senator who was working on Earth Day and who was very concerned about the environment and overpopulation himself. But he he Senator Nelson was very uncomfortable with. Um, with some of the things he was hearing. And, and I think, honestly, that may have been part of it. I think because a lot of these people who were concerned about overpopulation felt like he was on their side, a lot of the things they're saying, you can almost see the wink and a nod. You know, it felt like they felt very comfortable to talk with him because he was on the same page they were on. And at one point, Senator Nelson kind of stopped down the hearings uh, when, when one of the doctors made a comment about how important it was to reduce the population. And Senator Nelson said, again, expressing his discomfort. He said, I, I'm not comfortable with the friends, the doctors I know that I've spoken with who feel so strongly about reducing the population that they've taken it upon themselves to play big brother and say, we cannot tell women about these side effects for fear they'll stop taking them. He said, it is not a doctor's place to, to you know, sacrifice a person in name of reducing population growth. Um, and so he, he was kind of incensed by this whole notion of, well, it, it, you know, it is beneficial. We need to keep this up. Uh, and, and I think that was part of what drove him to really try to get to the bottom of why these things had never really been proven safe. You know, from, from the, you know, the very first Puerto Rico trials um, where five women died. Uh, and now when you, when you see it listed in, in even reputable uh, publications, they'll usually cite that three women died. But at the hearings, they clearly stated that five women had died during the trials. They were all buried without autopsies. None of the deaths were attributed to the pill. These are five young, healthy women. And none of those women knew that they were actually on a trial, did they? Correct. Right. Right. And it, it kind of going off in another direction, but one of the things I thought of when you were speaking a while ago is you know, talking about the effect of these drugs, it's really unpredictable too. If, you know, some, some people have, have asked me about, you know, the, you know, getting tested for certain factors to make sure you're not at risk for a blood clot or whatever and, and ask what I think about that. And I'm really uncomfortable with even that because I think it gives you a false sense of security, you know, because you may test negative for whatever factor you get tested for. And you may think, well, it's perfectly safe then, but that's, that's not the truth either. These things are so idiosyncratic. There's really no predicting. I, I don't, I, I'm not convinced there's any test that can, can really tell you, Hey, these are safe for you to take because I've met so many families who have lost daughters, you know, their daughters have died from, from blood clots, from taking birth control. And for me, it's, it, that's been really eye opening too, because it's from virtual, I, I've seen women who have, or, you know, families of women who have died from the depot shot, who have died from Yaz or Yasmin, who have died from logesterone or whatever it is, logesterol. Any drug can kill you. Any, any birth control hormone can kill you because everybody is a little different. Everybody's chemistry is a little different. Um, I met 
one woman whose daughter just after her 16th birthday, just a couple of weeks after her 16th birthday passed away. And she was taking what was supposed to be the lowest, safest dose of estrogen. Well, if your doctor has assured you this is the safest dose of estrogen and suddenly your 16-year-old daughter drops dead, I mean, there's, there's really nothing that can, there's, there's no amount of convincing that could ever talk me into allowing my daughters to take birth control, you know, and, I, and I'm hoping that they'll never try it either. You know, it's, that's another reason this mission has become so important to me as, um, as I've gone through, because now they're getting to an age where, you know, their, their doctors, their friends' doctors are starting to really push them, you know, to, uh, to take the drug to help with their acne or to do whatever and all these wonderful benefits. And it's just, um, hope, hopefully, uh, hopefully people will see that there is no lowest, safest dose of, of this stuff. Yeah. The low dose is still doing what it's got to do, you know, so right. it's low, but you know, it's still doing it. <laughs> So right. <laughs> right. It's, it's got to be a high enough dose to be effective, yeah. right? If it's going to exactly. do what it's going to do. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Um, and like I said, it's, it's just so idiosyncratic. You, you, you really have no idea how your body's going to react to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and there's, you know, there's that extreme, you know, where you're talking about where people, women are dying. Uh, and then there's, uh, and I think I actually remember reading in your book where, they were talking about the statistics and saying, oh, well, it's only, I can't remember and I haven't written them down, you know, one in, I don't know, 100,000 or something like that. But then when you multiply that by the, um, you know, population of America, say, for example, and then the, the number ends up being, you know, huge. It's like we think we think it's kind of if, if we're talking about blood clots, say, for example, I don't know exactly what the the risk is, but it's it's like one is one is too many you know if we've got a succession of of women who are dying from taking this drug then what where's the where's the inquest and the inquiry into looking into see you know what's actually really going on here and how is it that we're it how did it get to this point for a start and not only is there those extremes which is death but there is everything in between that as well and and i have women who I see all the time who like your wife, you know, say, I just didn't feel like myself or even when they come off it, then they realize how they feel then and realize only realize then how they actually felt when they were on it. And, but, but then at the, on the same token, there are women who say that they don't experience anything and that they've swear by the pill. And, you know, it's, it's come with that whole women's liberation movement and um just the the freedom of women's rights and their reproductive health and all of that but at the same time you know what we've got to really question what and how that all came about and you know what what is the result now and where what position are we in as women by using this drug and i remember um i have written something down where you said in your book so many times the dangers of the pill could have and should have been caught, but then at the right, just at the right moment, forces would align to buoy its progress. So I don't know if you remember writing that in the book, but yeah, what do you mean by that? Like what actually happened? What came in to allow it to actually be approved? Well, I, I think, you know, clearly 
I think, you know, part of what I was thinking there is it's almost like the pill is almost like a, this action hero. And, and it's at some point, it's kind of hard to tell at what point it was, uh, you know, fate. And at what point it was actual manipulation where people were doing things to make sure this got approved. And, you know, I think, I think when I wrote that, there was a, there was an instance where um, Herbert Humphrey had started uh, a Senate hearing looking into ineptitude at the FDA. And that was where they first discovered uh, kind of the inadequacies of the Puerto Rico trial that had, had gotten the pill approved. And, just as he was digging into it and gaining ground, he was suddenly selected as a vice presidential nominee. His, his uh, Senate hearing closed down and, and it never went any further. So just as it looked like they were finally starting to question, you know, some of the facts behind this drug, uh, the, the Senator who was curious about it got, you know, pulled into a, a different arena, so to speak. Um, but also, you know, one thing that I think is clearly fate is the, uh, the, uh, Puerto Rico trial was submitted to the FDA just, uh, I think, a matter of weeks before thalidomide. And uh, thalidomide became a huge scandal when, as it was going through the FDA process, the drug company was putting pressure on the FDA to approve it. The, uh, the young woman who was handling the case wouldn't be pushed. She, she wanted to do her due diligence, uh, research it thoroughly. They were pressuring her, pressuring her, and, and over the course of time, as, as she was doing her research, uh, it became clear that thalidomide was leading to a lot of really severe birth defects in Europe, uh, and so the, the drug never got approved, and that kind of changed the whole dynamic of how the FDA operated. It really shined a spotlight on them and, and changed the way things were done, and like I said, this was just weeks after the uh, Innovid uh, trial had been submitted to to get the first birth, first birth control approved, and you know from listening to uh, the subsequent FDA commissioners talking about the the proof they thought had been given and what what really wasn't there, uh, a lot of the, the subsequent commissioners acted as though they probably wouldn't have, have approved uh, the pill knowing what they know now. But you know it's kind of hard to get the uh, toothpaste back in the tube once it's out. And now it's been going for sixty years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you know, same kind of thing. You know, it's. It, I think a lot of women, you know, they they may be convinced that an older formulation. You know, I still hear that occasionally. You know, when I when I bring up the Puerto Rico trial, it's like, well, that was that was innovative. That was the first generation. It's so much safer now. They, but you know, I think the fourth generation is is probably more dangerous than second and third generation. You know, they're. Bayer, who, who manufactures Yaz and Yasmin fourth generation, have settled over 10,000 lawsuits, paying out over $2 billion to settle them. And, and that's just blood clot-related lawsuits, and many of those women died. Um, you know, they've had other lawsuits they've settled for gallstones and, and such. But there, there are still big problems with even the newest hormones. And um, it's just... You know, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know how we get it under control, other than just educating and informing and trying to push back against all the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, and that, that was huge when I read that too. The payouts from Bayer, I think he said two billion dollars for blood clots. There was fifty-seven million for heart attack and stroke, and twenty-one point five million for gallbladder damage, and that was all in just one year. Like that's 
That's huge. And it just it's just interesting that there's obviously a lot of evidence. You know, there's a lot of evidence to say that there is that these drugs are not safe and and like you said they've actually never been proven safe. And so somehow there's obviously there's manipulation in the research or the way that it's being um communicated, um the way that the way that doctors are being educated maybe. Um I mean, how is it that you know, the I mean, do do doctors actually know all of these side effects, and are they aware of all of this, um, you know, fine print? I guess that comes within these packages of medicine. And you know, I know that that there would be, you know, doctors do a very good job, and their their intention is is they don't go into medicine wanting to harm. You know, they obviously the first. Hippocratic oath is to to do no harm, and they they don't want to be you know prescribing things that are going to be harmful for their patients. But I do wonder, like you know, what what is the their education, and and therefore then what is being passed on to their patients? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I wrestle with a lot too. Is you know what what is the level of consciousness at the at the different you know level you know, from your, you know, like your general practitioner doctor up to doctors who work for those pharmaceutical companies and things like that. And I think for me, I'm kind of willing to give doctors on a local level kind of a pass, you know, because they're going by how they've been trained and how they've been educated. And I think a lot of that, you know, I think academia has been kind of uh, twisted by primarily by it was called the Bay Dole Act that Bob Dole sponsored that kind of put universities in bed with with the drug companies on on research and things of that nature and so the university labs and, and facilities that should be kind of the watchdogs of the drug industry are now in bed with them and earning residual income off of patents you know that they they develop together and and I think that's had a really negative effect on on the the medical schools because it's given the pharmaceutical companies kind of direct access to, to form that curriculum and form that education. So to a large extent, I don't blame the, you know, the, the general doctor in your neighborhood who, if I try to put myself in a doctor's shoes, you know, you, you have to be confident in your training because you've got people coming to you with who knows what symptoms they're going to have. And you're trying to figure it out. And you can't look like you're clueless or you have no idea what it could be because you want to comfort them and you want to give them confidence. So you have to have confidence yourself in your training. So I I can see how it would be really easy for a doctor to say, well, I was told in my training that these things have been on the market for 50 years and, and they're safe. And the, the, you know, any side effects are so small that they need to be a concern because you're probably never even going to see a patient who, who complains of any of these concerns. So I can see how a local doctor, but I do think at some level, as you move up the ranks, there are definitely people who are manipulating and, and trying to keep covert, you know, just how common the problems and side effects are with these drugs. Yeah. Not only the, the probably the education that filters down, but also the research Mm-hmm. I guess you know it's if if that's the case and everybody's in bed with each other, then the research is very um, suited to what the outcome of of um, you know that I guess is focused around money in the end. 
feels like a, it feels like a <laughs> lot of decisions are made based on bottom line. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um well, you know, yeah, the bottom line, money, and um and obviously, you know, you're talking about population growth and and all sorts of things that seem to be very separate from the woman herself, you know, and yes. and the health of a woman. And where this, and also it's a medication used for different conditions, but it's it's become very separate. Like I said, to to a woman's health and well-being, it's it's not that's not that's not the focus. Is what we're seeing here, and what's very clear when you read um, your book. Right, um, and a book I read early on in my research by Betsy Hartman called uh, Reproductive Rights and Wrong is. Uh, is a really fascinating read if, if you if you have time to read it sometime and um, she you know she's she's a liberal she's a feminist and she's not happy with the way uh, these drugs are being pushed on women and so it's really interesting to read her perspective uh, because again you know like you said it's 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 kind of pushed as a, a woman's right thing and it's it's been built into you know a lot of feminism is built around protecting this notion but but her her perspective was that, that this is all built around population control, and that uh, you know any kind of reproductive health uh, that was truly built around care and concern of, for the woman's health, rather than reducing population control as as fast as possible, would look completely different than what we have. Um, so yeah, if you just look at the system, it's very clear it has been developed with the sole intent of trying to reduce the population as fast as possible. And I don't think women's health is even an afterthought in in the development of these these drugs. Yeah, so it really does, you know, come back to what I was saying at the very beginning in just terms of the supply and demand. You know, in terms of what women are demanding. In terms of their healthcare, like it's really, you know, we could we could say, and we do need to call out the corruption, you know, within all of this, um, absolutely. But but women also need to step up and go. Well, you know, this is this is what we want. You know, this is how we want our healthcare, and um, and really demand that that be be have that as our our standard in healthcare, or demand a level and a standard in healthcare that that is very much honoring of them and their bodies and you know i mean there's so many aspects of life where we can do more of that i think yeah absolutely so we've talked about the history of the pill we've talked a lot about that but we haven't really spelled out what what are the actual effects of the pill like what are the main ones that you come from, I mean, you've got a whole sort of section in the book, which is the second part of the book that talks about the correlations between hormonal birth control and certain conditions and diseases. Can you, can you give us a, a rundown of the risks? What are the risks? You know, we've mentioned a few, but if you could elaborate, that'd be awesome. Sure. And, and if it's okay, I'll, I'll start with, uh, you know, you mentioned the petition. Um, so there's a doctor who's a, an Ivy League professor of medicine. He's at the University of Pennsylvania. And, and he was working on, he was starting on an article kind of looking back at, you know, the, the pill 50 years later uh, and kind of started looking through a lot of the same research I had gone through um, 
and started realizing, wow, there's just, <laughs> there's, there's a plethora of studies in all these different areas connecting the pill to all these different things. And then he started cross-referencing it with the various patient information pamphlets. And he realized, you know, as, as huge and cumbersome as those things are with the tiny print and everything, they were still incomplete. A lot of these studies still weren't being represented in the only, you know, chance a woman had to hear about these, these illnesses. Um, and so he, he started the, uh, the petition to the FDA, which is still being considered by the FDA because they said we threw so much stuff at them that it was going to take a while to uh, sort through it all. So hopefully it will lead to new uh, patient information warnings. But yeah, so I, I did talk a little about, uh, you know, autoimmune disease. Uh, some of the studies uh, include, uh, let me try to find it here. Um, so 50% more likely to develop uh, lupus, women who take birth control, 35% uh, more likely to develop multiple sclerosis. They triple the risk of developing Crohn's disease. Uh, you mentioned gallbladder with Yaz. Women who take birth control are 30% more likely to develop gallstones. Um, then also, you know, depression is another one. Seven, women who take birth control are 70% more likely to develop depression, and they triple the risk of committing suicide. Um, and again, that's another one of those things that really bugs me how it's, it's so easily written off by doctors to, uh, you know, they'll just prescribe a second drug to try to help you deal with your anxiety, you know, rather than, I mean, for God's sake, why, why wouldn't you just take her off the drug that got her depressed in the first place? Um, but you know, they, they're so quick to jump into polypharmacy. Um, uh, and another one that, that really jumped out at me when I started looking at it was was breast cancer, because if there's if there's ever a side effect that you can clearly historically look at and say, OK, there is there is fire here. We need to be paying attention to the smoke. So if we go back to the Nelson Pill hearings at the Nelson Pill hearings, they said that uh, 75 to 80,000 women were being diagnosed with breast cancer in the United States each year. Um, one out of every 20 women was being diagnosed. And one of the doctors said, if, if we see even a 10% increase, it's gonna be a very hazardous uh, situation. Well, we've seen a 210% increase. We've gone from one out of every 20 to one out of every eight women is diagnosed with breast cancer in her life. And now instead of 75,000 a year, we're seeing 268,000 women a year diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and again, it was, it was kind of a prophetic thing. You know, the, this was still really early on in the, the life of, of this drug that the Nelson Pillings happened, but they, they had already seen enough to know they were concerned. And, and, and Barbara Seaman mentioned it in her book in 1970 as well, where she, you know, she talked about uh, the drug makers saw that it was, it was having a, it was making a difference in the cell function in the women's breasts but rather than be concerned about what might be happening, they used it as a sales point. They started saying it makes your breasts fuller. So rather than worrying about what was going on there, they started selling it as a, as a benefit again. Wow. It's, it just, it really, it really baffles me that, you know, we've, we've seen it all along the way, you know, it's all been there, but then we end up, you know, so far down the track that you wonder how, how it actually gets undone. 
Um, but I guess, you know, just talking about it like this and, and you writing it about it have as you have and women talking about their experiences is um is absolutely, you know, the the first steps. And there have been people along the way that have been very outspoken about, you know, how this has been traveling, um, which I really enjoyed reading about that in your book. Um, there was a particular journalist that you mentioned a few times that um, I think his name was Mort Morton. Mort, yeah, Morton Metz. He uh, he was he was a writer for the Washington Post and was frequently on uh, Face the Nation. And yeah, I I have a lot of respect for him. You know, it's I think we've we've kind of grown used to the way journalism is today, and we forget what what, what real journalists were like. You know, it, it, it's so to see him, and, and I, I actually was able to get a hold of him. And uh, he was, I think, 93 at the time, 94. I, I emailed him and asked him if it would be okay if I called him. And he said, yeah, but I'll warn you, I'm 93 and I've forgotten mountains of stuff. Uh, but I, I called him up and he was great. And he put me in touch with uh, Ben Gordon, who was Senator Nelson's right-hand man. And that's how I started learning more about the Nelson Pill hearings. And, um, but, but one of the things I really admire about Morton Mintz is and he he wrote a book as well called uh, uh, the pill an alarming report and in the in the forward to the book he talks about how he and his wife are members of Planned Parenthood and he wanted nothing more than to be able to say the pill had been proven safe but the evidence just didn't support it and I admire that that you know he has this bias he has this perspective of what he wants to find in his research, but he's still honest in his reporting to say, no, I can't say what I want to say. These things have not been proven safe. Um, and he was one of the uh, ones when, when uh, Hubert Humphrey had the hearing and showed that only a 32 women on the Puerto Rico trial had taken the drug for 12 consecutive months. Uh, Morton Mintz was the one who came out in the Columbia Review saying it was a scientific scandal, that these things had been approved based on this incredibly small number. He, and he said, more women are going to die this year alone from this drug than were even on the initial trial. And that was 1967, I think, when he wrote that. So, mm -hmm. you know, you imagine today, I mean, the drug is still on the market based on that same inaccurate, minuscule trial. It's, it's, it's phenomenal that we allow it to, you know, to stay on the market. And I remember you saying too in your um, in the book that that's such a small sample number, you know, and the, and the the way that it is today is based on that. But yeah. you know, there's there's been studies that have shown the the effects of of the the drugs and the the harms of the drugs, and yet then the pharmaceutical companies have come back and said, well, but the sample sizes are too small, like. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we need more information. Yeah, exactly. It's, Quite yeah, ironic. It's so ironic that that's her, their their main. Yeah, mm -hmm. we, we can't form a decision based on this small sample size. Yeah, yeah. Now, is there is there anything else that you want to share with us? Anything that that I have missed, or anything that you want to sort of fill the gaps in before we before we finish up? I'll say this. You know, even even as I started researching and some of the stuff it's it's kind of funny you know because we've we've gotten to this point now where kind of 
questioning things that are accepted as as common wisdom or common knowledge questioning it you you immediately get labeled a conspiracy theorist you know and i think people are afraid of that and i know certainly as i started digging through and and seeing some of the stuff about population control and things like that there were times where i felt like wow is this you know is this borderline conspiracy theory what what is this but there's just so much evidence to back it up and it's like all right you know sometimes when when you start talking about things that sound like conspiracy theories it's because there's a conspiracy um, and I saw three different reports. Barbara Seaman wrote about it, Morton Mintz wrote about it, and I found it in another article somewhere. There was a meeting in 1969 of medical school deans and Nobel laureate, I'm sorry, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Frederick Robbins was speaking. And this was 1968. He said, the dangers of overpopulation are so great that we may have to use certain techniques of conception control that may entail considerable risk to the individual woman. And it was reported that gasps went through the room. A lot of people weren't ready to hear something like that. And I'm sure at the time, Dr. Robbins seemed like an outlier. But two years later, at the Nelson Pill hearings, when you know a few doctors kind of echoed that same kind of sentiment, it's hard to call something like that conspiracy theory. They're clearly saying that they're co so concerned with overpopulation that they're willing to take considerable risk with the lives of women to make sure they, they reduce that population growth. And I think that should be a concern for everybody. That There's no clearer way of, of seeing that these drugs are designed specifically for that purpose. And you can't deny the, the multiple you know, side effects, damage that, that is done by these drugs. And um, I just, I just hope people take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's extraordinary when you really start to see what's underneath, you know, all the things that, you know, we see on the surface uh, creating problems and then you start digging and you start like, wow, you know, how far does this actually go? That's why I said at the beginning, we're going to go down the hormonal birth control rabbit hole. <laughs> right, right. And it's just, for me, it's that thing, you know, you may have, it's totally different than just uh, saying, well, people were really concerned about overpopulation. I wonder if they just designed this and didn't care about the safety. Well, we don't have to wonder. They, they clearly told us what their plan was. Um, you know, so it, it's, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's so many things that leave me scratching my head and going, how do, how do we get here? But this is where we are. So, Yeah, it is. It is where we are and you're doing amazing work. And I really appreciate what you've done, like the work that you've put in and the research that you've done to, to bring us this book. And I know that you're probably doing much more with that as well, or you have done with the petition uh, and and also, am I correct in saying that you're doing writing another book on long acting? I've, I've been working on it. I've been off and on, and, and of course, with the coronavirus, I've been uh, I've been distracted, uh, like I'm sure everyone has. Um, but yeah, I, I did have several several women reach out to me at, that had read my book and started asking me if I would write about uh, IUDs, um, if I would write about Depot more, and uh, so. Again, I, I was in I was in the boat where I had I kind of had assumed IUD was 
probably a safer option, you know, because it didn't have the hormones. And I think that's easy to do. But uh, now I've joined a Facebook group and I'm learning more and more about, gosh, you know, even without the hormones, that's not safe either because of the same type of principle of, you know, it's, it's essentially creating an, an infection, you know, it's, 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 it's building up white blood cells to try to prevent the, you know, the sperm from being effective. And uh, you're creating this environment that's just naturally unhealthy. And uh, I had never really considered that before. So now I've, I've started some research on that. And like I said, I've had several women reach out and share their stories with me. Um, so I, I do want to bring more attention kind of to, uh, the, you know, those, those long acting types of birth controls that uh, a lot of, again, we mistakenly kind of assume are safer. And depot's a big one, isn't it? At some, it's Depo. really, you, you know, once a woman takes that, you can't get it out. You can't, it's not like you can take the device out or take the, the implant out. You, yeah, the implant. You've got to just, you know, go go with it and ride, ride it out. Yes. And even the IUD, I've been uh, I've been kind of amazed at the number of women who whose doctors refuse to take them out when yes. they go back and say this thing is is killing me, take it out. And the doctor's like, no, let's give it at least six months. And the doctors just refuse. It's like, what happened to it's her body? <laughs> you know, it's a it, it's it just it baffles me. And and then yeah, like you say, I can't I can't I don't know I. I can't imagine if they had any kind of drug for a man that they wanted to implant under my skin. It would be pretty hard to talk me into to taking that, no matter what the drug was. Uh, because, yeah, exactly like you say, if I start to experience side effects, I, I can't just stop taking it. And, and the depot, you know, finally, you, you look at how slow the FDA is to act. The depot, actually, the FDA put a new black box warning on depot saying it's not intended to be a long-term uh, contraceptive and and they set the limit at two years they they say you should not take it longer than two years because of what it does to your uh, bone density um, and still I, I see women on some of these groups of men who have who are recommending depot to other women saying I've been on it for 15 years just take some calcium and you'll be fine that's what the, the doctors who are normally always poo-pooing on supplements are saying just take calcium there's so many things that that contradict you know it's it's phenomenal, it's phenomenal. You, you brought up something there too which just reminded me of um you know male contraceptive you said if you know you had it an implant in there was actually there has been studies on male contraception but they've been shut down because of the side effects that that men experience which are very very pretty much the same yeah (laughs) mimic the exact same side effects women experience exactly but yeah we we can't move forward on this because it's a it's affecting these men adversely yeah yeah yeah. you know erectile dysfunction you know, and whereas, you know, those exact same things with women, you know, because it, it decreases your libido, it yeah. shrinks, you know, your vulva and clitoris. It's like the, the effect that it has on a physical sense, as well as then depression and mood and all of those things. So it's, you know, we can't have that happen to men, but, you know, let's just let that happen to women for 60 years and <laughs> still be going yeah. along fine. No. Which is, is that, why I think it's very powerful, you know, that you that you as a man are saying, you know, this is unacceptable. You know, this this is unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, and I, 
I can't remember if I wrote it in the book or if I wrote it somewhere else, but I, I always, it, it makes me a little sad whenever a woman counters something I've said with, you know, well, I've been on it for 20 years and I've been perfectly fine and whatever. And that's great. But, you know, I just feel like, you know, I hope she's not seeing victory too soon, you know, because just because you've been on it 20 years and you haven't recognized any symptoms, whether you had any or not, I mean, you've still got the fact that you've been on those drugs for 20 years. What other drug are you willing to chronically take for 20 years? unless it's an absolute necessity to do with your health, but, but you take it for all those years and then you don't know whether you're going to end up with Sjogren's syndrome. You don't know if you're going to have to have gallbladder surgery. You don't know if you're going to have breast cancer, you know, and, you know, and at that point, is it worth it? You can't go back and say, well, I took it for 20 years and I was fine then, but now I'm really, you know, having to go through the ringer for, for all those years. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, there are the, the immediate, you know, blood clot and death, but then there's also the, you know, the, the things that take a while just because of the chronic use. And, and I, I don't know, I, I just, I have serious doubts that, that any woman has, has taken the drug for an extended period of time without it doing something detrimental. I'm sure some women have, have kind of escaped and, and been, you know, pretty fortunate to, to have much, much more, minor symptoms than, than a lot of women, but it's just, I just can't see how it can't take a toll on your body after so many years. Yeah. And we don't, we don't actually recognize, we, we kind of put reproductive health in this basket of, you know, it's just about pregnancy. So if we're not going to, we're not interested in pregnancy, then it doesn't matter. It's not actually important. It doesn't do anything for us. We can just, and I think that's probably the um, well, I think I read somewhere in your book about that being the one of the developers of the pill that was their original intention and that it was in good faith and that they thought they were just going to shut down the um, ovulation and, and a woman's fertility. But we, you can't just shut down a body system and think that it's not affecting the entire whole. Like, you know, it's it's <laughs> like it's crazy making, you know, to think that you know, you can shut down part, a whole, an entire body system and think that that is not going to affect a woman's health. And we, we have to get away from, you know, thinking that our reproductive health is just about pregnancy because it is so far from that, that it's mm -hmm. not funny. It is just so much about our, and a reflection of our health as a woman and as our, uh, that interlinks into so everything, every body system. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, you can't separate it. Yeah. yeah. I think it might have been Dr. Philip Korfman at the Nelson Peel hearings who said there's there's no there's no organ, no tissue in the body that isn't affected by these hormones, these synthetic hormones. And and you're right. I mean, you can't, you know, I think it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And you think, you know, because we don't really understand hormones, we assume we know everything about them, I guess. I, I don't know how that works, but we clearly don't know enough about them. And, and it's not just the system as a whole. You think about, um, I think in the United States, estimates are between 13 and 18 million women taking hormonal birth control. So that's 13 to 18 million women every day taking ethanol estradiol. And for it to be effective, it has to pass through the system virtually unchanged. It resists degradation to stomach acid. So you've got 13 to 18 million women 
a day flushing this same chemical into the sewage system. Okay, so it's not just affecting the woman, now it's affecting fish, frogs, men, right? It's uh, a doctor who did a study in Colorado, a professor said, you know, when you think about hormones, the amount, we're used to talking about contaminants in, in parts per million, right? So we, historically, we, we don't even think about contamination in increments smaller than that. But when you get to hormones, the way he describes it, is if you, if you imagine taking a pinch of salt and dropping it into an Olympic-sized pool, that's the amount of hormones it takes to start making an impact on the human body. A, one pinch of salt in an Olympic-sized pool, that's the amount of hormone it takes to start having an effect on the body. So now you have 13 to 18 million women flushing it into the sewage system every day. Well, the tests he did, he, he went and he looked at, at streams throughout Colorado. He went upstream from uh, sewage plants, tested, and found that there was a pretty balanced 50-50 uh, male to female fish ratio. Then he went below the effluent from where effluent from sewage systems was released into the waterways, and there were five female fish for every male fish. And most of the male fish also were hermorphodetic. They had, uh, you know, some female characteristics. Um, so clearly, sewage waste and ethanol estradiol is having an effect on the ecosystem as well. Um, he did some other studies on frogs and such that I, I mentioned in the book. But but yeah, it's 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 clear that it's having an environmental impact as well. Mm. Yeah, because that's a huge number of women, isn't it? And that's just that's just in mm -hmm. the U.S. And that's just the U.S., right? Yeah. And there have been other studies done uh, in Europe. Um, trying to remember, I think Susan Jobling did some some research in, in the U.K. Uh, but so it, yeah, it's, it's it's not it's clearly not uh, isolated anywhere. This is this is a worldwide problem. Yeah, it's um it reaches far and wide in in many different ways you know the, as much as it's affecting environmentally you know other people other animals you know like you say but it's it's also the effect that it has on the woman whether she's aware of it or not then her relating like her connection to herself like this there's, there's just i think so much that we don't understand too like you know that we we couldn't probably really um more study more research you know to to really get to see the effect that it is actually having on so many levels and you've done sure. such an amazing job to get that ball rolling and you know just really expanding on some of the work that other people have done so very much appreciate that and very much appreciate having you on the show and I I do hope I mean I could just sit here and talk to you for a very long time <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I do hope that you know, you'll come back and have more chats um, as more things develop with the work that you're doing. Uh, I know that the, my listeners would be very appreciative of that and really love what you've got to share. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you and would be happy to come back anytime. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. How can people get in contact with you or how can they get the book if they're interested? Uh, the book is on Amazon, um, and I'm probably easiest to find on Facebook uh, as Mike Gaskins or uh, on Instagram at uh, In the Name of the Pill. 
Amazing. Fantastic. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so that it's accessible for everyone. And um, thanks once again, Mike. Thanks. You're listening to Follow Your Flow podcast with Sarah Harris. Subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and get in touch. All details on www.followyourflow.com.au slash podcast.